Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And this week's guest is a guest that listeners to the podcast have been asking for basically from the very first day we announced this project. Would get emails asking for this guest. Uh, people have reached out via social media for this guest. I can't even attend a single event at the Franco-American Center without people asking when I'm going to have the guest on the podcast. And today is finally the day. So today's guest is Ben Levine, the man behind the hugely influential and important film, Revi, Waking Up. French. Many listeners of the show have pointed to the film as a reason why they reconnected uh, with their Franco-American heritage, and we've had guests of the show credit the film as being a significant reason why they have chosen to dedicate themselves to telling the Franco-American story. So needless to say, this is an episode that Mike and I are very, very excited about. Ben Levine, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. You know, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be with you. And an honor, and um, and it's really great to hear um, that people are continuing to be affected by the film uh, and to um, use it as a as a resource for you know working on uh, reconnecting. And um, I'll tell you some more about how how the film has affected people uh, as we get into the interview. But it's an honor to be with you. Thanks very much for asking me. Awesome. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your story. So. Where are you from, and how did it come up that you decided to make a documentary about Franco-Americans? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, uh, first one, first part of the question is, where am I from? Uh, I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. Nice. Uh, it's a, a mill city that uh, was known for um, shoe manufacturing, uh, and it's, uh, except for size, it's not a lot different than Manchester or Augusta, Maine, or or Lowell, or any any of the other big uh, mill cities that, that French Canadians came down to work in. Uh, the thing about Brockton that was a little different than those other cities is that it had a very large Italian, Greek, Portuguese, Lithuanian, uh, French, and Jewish population. Okay. And I heard all these languages in the, uh, as when I was a little boy, we still had a vibrant Main Street and the main food store was called the Brockton Public Market. It was on that Main Street. And when I went in there, I heard all these languages and That's all awesome. these people being who they were, talking in their own language and enjoying themselves and not feeling any uh, pressure to, to, to be anything other than they were. So I, I grew up with that, with that memory of, of, um, of uh, people having uh, a comfort in, in, uh, in, in who they were and the language that they spoke. So I think the uh, second part of your question was, how did I come to make Reve? Okay, so you may you may not be aware of it, but um, 20 years before I um, I made Reve, I made a film called Si Je Comprends Bien, if I really understand. That's yes. the translation, and um, and that was a documentary uh, that was made at a time when documentaries weren't so um, so common uh, as as they are now. And um, in that film, I, uh, I made that film because the referendum for uh, independence of Quebec was happening. Sure. And, I, and it, it really struck me that, as odd 
if to say the least, that nobody was paying any, in Maine anyway, nobody was paying any attention to the fact that we might have a new country on our border, you know, the country of Quebec. Right. And um, uh, so I made the film that it was filmed mainly in Quebec, but I did a lot of filming in um, in uh, Augusta, Maine and and some other parts of Maine uh, to kind of show the contrast of how people in Quebec were fighting for their for their culture and for their language, where people in in Maine seemed resigned to losing it. Um, Interesting. And, and um, of course, that referendum uh, lost and uh, lost big. I did meet a number of people, uh, particularly one family in Lewiston, Maine, and um, that I, I filmed. And, and that family, the Turcots, wonderful people. I filmed them at a French cultural festival, uh, Franco-American festival. Sure. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where when a language or a culture is dying, you know, people sort of have one day a year where they put on and sort of celebrate who they were, you know, right. because they're not that way anymore. Right. And I was there and I was filming and this, uh, this man seemed pretty interested in talking to me. And, and, uh, he was, uh, Mr. Turcott was, um, was saying that, um, you know, he was with his wife and his, his, uh, 10 year old son, Michael. And he was saying, well, yeah, we're French, but we don't speak French that much anymore. And I'm, I'm bringing my children up to be uh, speaking English. And, you know, uh, he was clearly assimilating and, and, and invested in, in assimilating and letting go of his, his, uh, his culture. And his son uh, piped up and he said, well, I don't want to lose. I, I want to speak French. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to speak French. I'm going to speak French. And, and that little voice, you know, that little voice resonated in my, my brain um, years later when uh, the second referendum happened in 95. And um, people in Quebec sought me out because there weren't that many people in, in New England that knew anything about Quebec. You know, this is the kind of alienation that we have between Maine, New England and Quebec. You know, there's a sure. kind of a intentional designed alienation. And what you guys are doing is great because you're helping to transcend that. So amazingly, you know, they they found me and they said, well, you made this film about Quebec, you must know something about it. And um, they interviewed me and, and, um, and, you know, the whole thing was quite bizarre, but it got me interested in uh, the Quebec referendum again. But also by this time, I had had a number of experiences in and around central Maine where I... Um, I was uh, I had been I had been traveling a bit and I wanted to improve my French. And so whenever I met anybody, you know, who was speaking French in, like, say, Waterville, I'd say, oh, you're a French speaker. You know, how about uh, can we get together? I'd like to practice my French because it's terrible. And I want to want to I want to um, I, I be able to be able to speak French and travel in French countries and so on. Sure. And um, especially, you know, Quebec. And uh, and they would say, like, there's this one woman in in in. Um, Waterville. She was quite amazing. She worked in a laundromat and she, she saw me folding my t-shirts. She said, Oh my God, you don't know how to fit. You don't know how to fold a t-shirt. She, <laughs> she said, you must be a bachelor. Well, at the time I was, I said, let me do that for you. Then she got a phone call and she spoke beautiful, beautiful, fluent French um, to this person on the phone. So I said, Hey, Sylvia, you, you really speak beautiful French. How about us speaking French together? She said, oh, no, you oh, really? speak French. And I thought, what in the world? Here's a woman who's clearly fluent. I can barely say good morning. 
And she's telling me I speak the good French. What's going on here? That tipped me off to a number of things I had seen and experienced also with my friends who had French surnames, but they never wanted to talk about being French. So I started to um, see that um, that there was a that the French was disappearing, obviously, but there was something else going on, a kind of an emotional history of, of French people that was not being talked about. And I, I didn't understand what that was. Uh, all I knew is it seemed like people were ashamed to speak or, or afraid to speak French in public. And uh, I, I started to uh, investigate that. And I started to call upon a side of myself that I hadn't really sort of brought forth in a long time. And that is that I was originally trained as a clinical psychologist. Oh, and wow. I, and I worked as a clinical psychologist. And I always had a kind of psychological attitude towards filmmaking and that I was always interested in people's um, helping people to uh, express themselves uh, and express their emotions. And um, as it turned out, right around this time, Lissa Widoff and, and Bruce Hazard approached me. They had gotten a, a grant and um, they wanted to give me some money to uh, work at the Railroad Square Cinema in Waterville to show um, films from France to the French people in Waterville to uh, maybe encourage them to come to the cinema more because they they didn't they weren't in the habit of coming to that that was kind of an art cinema gotcha. and, um, uh, independent cinema and they weren't coming to it and I thought hell no we're going to show <laughs> back because by this time I had realized that part of the quiet revolution that happened in Quebec so a lot of people don't know about this but starting after the war World War Two you know Quebec sort of changed its course historically. Um, and a number of people who started the Parti Québécois were concerned that the French language and French identity was was going to disappear. They they had they had a, a research and they had also their own observations that showed that that demographically, if uh, if the trend, current trends at the time continued, uh, English would 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 soon dominate everything in Quebec, yeah. and that French language would would wither. And of course, the history of, of Quebec, as it is in New Brunswick, is um, the uh, attempt of, of English Quebec to forcefully assimilate and, and destroy, you know, uh, French uh, sure. culture, language, and, and, and politic politics. So they started this thing called the um, Quiet Revolution. Well, it was called the Quiet Revolution after the fact. Sure. And they just started doing a lot of things to reinforce French. They had the Law 101. Uh, where all the signage, all the public language had to be in French. And um, it was controversial, um, but it succeeded to the point where in 1995, the referendum to, se to separate from Canada only lost by one-tenth of a percent. And that was, that was really an eye-opener to a lot of people, and it was to me as well. So I decided around that time, between 95 and, and um, 99, uh, to start making this uh, when I got that grant to, to work at Railroad Square Cinema. So my partner and I, Julia Schultz, she's fluent French speaker. She's done a lot of research in uh, French communities in um, Arista County, Acadian communities. Um, she was trained as an anthropologist but became uh, a language teacher, and, uh, and she started a language school called the Penobscot School. And so she and I um, shared a common love and a common interest in, in Franco-American culture and, and what was happening to it. And we just started a conversation between the two of us 
that um, became a big part of our life, actually. We actually fell in love and, and got married at the same time. So we, you know, this was all happening at the same time. So um, we were having a great time. And then I realize you guys are uh, probably going to edit this, so I, I won't be self-conscious about how long the story is. No, not uh, at all. You're fine. Okay, so, so what happened was we met a group of people in, uh, in Waterville, and we said, we want to show... Uh, films from Quebec. There was about six of them, uh, Franco-American people. And uh, they said, okay, sure. And I said, like, when would you like to see these films? Like seven o'clock on, on, you know, some Wednesday night or Thursday night or Friday night. We can't do weekends. And they said, no, no, we don't want to, we don't want to come out in, at night. How about nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday? I mean, I've never seen a film at night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were all older people. Sure. And, um, <laughs> And uh, I said, okay, if that's what you want to do. So we started showing these films from Quebec. Now, the reason I mentioned The Quiet Revolution is one of the things they did in Quebec is when they, when they realized that their culture was in danger, they started to put, pump a lot of money into uh, literature, art, and filmmaking, and music, all kinds of things that would reinforce the French identity. So they made, uh, you know, a score of, of films, fantastic films, films like Monocle Antoine, and uh, it was probably one of the most famous ones, um, uh, Bonheur d'Occasion. Uh, these are films that Monaco Anton may have played in Manchester once, you know, but these films generally weren't seen in the United States. And so we started playing these films. And before you knew it, we had standing room only in, in, the, in Railroad Square because what we were doing is we'd show the film and then we'd start to facilitate a conversation because obviously people wanted to talk about their French background. And they started to talk. And long story short, they started to tell about uh, their lives growing up and what they loved about being French and the music, the dancing, rolling up the carpet and putting it out on the porch and <laughs> dancing all night. And everybody in the family played an instrument and, yeah. and, um, and you know, just all kinds of stories about um, what, what it meant to be French and celebrating that. And I got, the, I was getting that on on film, and and you see a lot of that in the, in in the film Reve, and um and we also showed, uh, I, I'm going to uh, step back for a minute in the history here. So when Railroad Square started, they said, well, we want to show films made in Maine. Uh, ben, you had a film about the French people you made in 1980 called Si Je Comprends Bien. You want to play it? I said, well, sure, okay. You know, it, it never did. That film never did that much. It, it, um, but if you want to show it, I'm, I'm happy to do that. You know, I expected maybe 12 people would show up. And um, they advertised it. And yep. the day they played it, it was standing room only. I mean, awesome. the people were pouring in and they were speaking French. And I turned to a young woman who just gotten out of film school. And I said, hey, here's the keys to my car. I've got a camera in the car. Go get that. Will you please? <laughs> and, and please film the conversation that's going to happen because I have a feeling it's going to be great. And in fact, it was great. And that's what kind of persuaded us that this um, this Franco-American Film Festival is, is what it became, that um, that the grant uh, turned out. We had two years of showing French films from uh, films from Quebec in French and having conversations. And during that, each one of those conversations, we were digging deeper and deeper into the emotional history sure. of French people. And we were seeing how there was an ambivalent attitude towards the church, for instance, that, you know, like after uh, Monarch L'Antoine, it was uh, some people said, well, why did you show us this film? You shouldn't show us a film like this. I said, why? They said, well, it shows the priest in an unfavorable light. 
I said, wow, I didn't get that. What was unfavorable? Well, they showed him sneaking a, um, a sip of a glass of wine. <laughs> oh, really? That's unfavorable, yeah, I guess. Get okay. that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, then somebody else said something. Um, I said something, but it was unintelligible. I, I couldn't figure out what he was saying. And then, you know, somebody else raised their hand. Another man raised his hand. And he, he said um, something that was also unintelligible. And then a third guy, you know, it was just a fragment. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was just a fragment. So I started to put these things together, you know, connecting the dots. And I realized that what they were trying to say is that they were angry at the church for some of its policies. And in particular, as it turned out, they were angry at the church policy for forcing women to have too many, as it turned out, pregnancies. You know, in Quebec, they this was called the... Um, Revenge, Revenge of the Cradle. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, the, the women were under pressure to have, you know, sometimes 20 children. And uh, in, in, in the first people coming into Maine, it was very similar. You know, many people told us that they came from families of 12 or, or, or 14 children. And this was in Maine. In one of these feedback sessions, we called it feedback because people were responding to the film and we were facilitating their uh, expression and connecting each other to people. And finally, one woman told a story and she told a story about her husband who she had divorced because he was a bit crazy and he didn't take care of her when she was having a, a child who died. Oh, wow. And um, she told a story about um, how her husband, uh, her husband's mother she had found out later after she had divorced her husband that her husband's mother had had many, many children and that she had five of them had died yeah. at birth. And and um, and this had, had kind of driven the family nuts. And and, you know, I mean, there was just so much trauma in this sure. family Absolutely. From, from children dying and from babies dying. And and and, and she said, you know, on camera, she said this you know, this, this conversation is telling me what happened to my husband, you know, that he was yeah, so traumatized wow. yep. that he couldn't, he couldn't be a good father and he couldn't be a good husband. And so this started to open up really deep stories about the Franco-American experience. And um, because if you think about it, if you have a family where there's 20 pregnancies, you know, between the time a woman is 19 or 20 and the time she's uh, stops, um, being of childbearing age, by like 40, right. that means she's having a pregnancy almost every year. Yeah, yeah, now, it's crazy. If you think about it, Yeah, the, um, the child mortality rate in those days was somewhere between 30 and 50%, sometimes higher when there was an influenza. So that means that in a lot of these families, there was a child dying every year or two. And, and this was, you know, so then, you know, starting to see why a young woman in Lewiston, Maine, who had just seen Rave stood up and said, I'll never, never, never go to the church again because of what the church did to my aunts and my grandmothers and, and how it forced them to go through this, this uh, terrible torture, you know, yeah, that's uh, intense. Uh, yeah. and, and then, and then, you know, right after that, that woman, that young woman, her father stood up and he said, I know what my daughter is saying. I know it's true, you know, but I love the church. And, and I just hope someday she'll come back to the church. You know, it was really touching. Yeah. And, you know, afterwards, you know, a priest came up to me and he said, this is a very good film, but I don't like, you know, the fact that you suggest that the church didn't do some things right. You know, I don't see how you could say that. The church has done so many great things. And I said, well, here's some women, you know, standing right next to us. Why don't you ask them what they have to say? Yeah. Well, they lit into him. 
<laughs> you know, and you know, like you're not listening. You yeah, know, it's basically absolutely. what their message was. So uh, I'll just finish this by saying that um, we started to make a film. We realized that we had a number of stories here that were related. Stories about the immigration from Quebec, about the um, the forces that were 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 shaping the Franco-American experience, the the prejudice, the fact that so many people came at one time that English-speaking um, Protestants, you know, got very upset and um, and were looking around for a way to either suppress the culture or, or send people home. And one day I got a call from Yvonne Labbe, uh, who's was the director of the Franco-American Center at UMO. And Yvonne said, you know, something really strange happened. A, a woman brought, dropped off a, a seal today. And it, you know what a, you know, a seal is like a, a notary of the public and you have yep. to bring a paper to her and she sticks it in this thing. It looks like a clamp and you yes, yep. squeeze it and it embosses, raises up, a, says, you know, uh, it's kind of an official thing. Yeah. And she said she brought me in a seal, a seal from the um, women's auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan in Maine. Oh, geez. I said, what the hell are you talking about? Women's auxiliary Ku Klux Klan. I think we all knew that, you know, there was something about the Klan in the in the 20s, but nobody paid much attention to it. And, you know, uh, long story short, we uncovered the story of how the Klan in Maine and New Hampshire and other New England states was uh, during the 20s was way larger and more powerful than and than anything down south. And they burnt crosses. And, and when I showed the film, and, and so there's a section in the film about the Klan. Yep. And then we started to see that whole communities had been terrorized. And that, uh, for instance, in, 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 in French Island outside of Bangor, the Klan came and tried to burn the whole community down. And the men met them on the bridge and um, with pipes and, and chains and, 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 and axes and fought them. You know, I mean, this is how come we don't know this? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is the, you know, uh, this is what became a kind of a psychological documentary of uncovering the emotional history of a people who had to fight for their survival. But they were so ashamed that somebody wanted to do that to them that they never talked about it to their children. And they never talked. And, and so not only, you know, the, the existence of the Klan as a, as a as historic fact was completely suppressed, along with the trauma of the people who had to fight the Klan to survive. So that's what I wanted to bring out in the film. Sure. And I feel like, um, you know, when I showed the film, two years after I, I, for the two years after I made the film, I showed it about a hundred times. And a lot of people would, a lot of people would say, you know, um, yeah, my mother told me about that. You know, they, they told me how they fought the Klan and, you know, the things they did to, to uh, suppress the Klan and, and defend themselves against the Klan. And, and one man told me, that his father had been a carpenter and, and was part of a crew that was renovating Superior Court chambers in Portland, Maine. You may remember that Portland had a Klan march in 1920, 1925 in which 10,000 Klan members from Maine marched yeah. in broad daylight. And he said, you know, we were working on these chambers and I saw that there was uh, something funny about this wall. And it wasn't the exterior wall. It was a false wall. So we knocked it down. And what we found inside were Ku Klux Klan robes. Crazy. So this was the judge's chambers. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. So, so you know, so these are the kind of things that made me feel like that this was important um, to, to get these things out. But I'll tell you, I never had any idea of what would happen to the film 
well, you know, that it took a long time and it costs a lot of money to make these films, you know, and you don't sure. get much, you, you know, you kind of go into debt. And, um, and I was at, at my, at the limit of my finances to, to get this thing done. So I finally said to, you know, to the people at Rare and Square, I said, I don't know, you know, I'm just going to finish this as best I can. I had an editor and I had to pay her and I had a tech, you know, a technical guy who was doing our color correction and so on. And sure, you know, I had, sure. to, you know, I had a lot of expenses and plus I was, had to, you know, live. And um, I said, you know, just give me a date. I'm going to just show what I got and, and call it good because I can't do this anymore. It was costing me more money to, to fundraise than it was to, you know, just to finish the film with my own money. So I finished it as best I could. And um, they advertised it in, in, in um, Waterville. And that was a night to remember that, you know, that was standing room only. That's Some awesome. of the most influential Franco-Americans in the, in, in the state came and, and everybody talked and every, you know, it was like, it was a complete uh, eruption of, of celebration of, um, of, of French people kind of coming out and, and saying, this is what we want. And, and people in Waterville really just ran with it. And they, they started all kinds of new things. They started language groups, which are still going today. A language revival really took off in, in Augusta and in, um, in, uh, in Lewiston and one socket and um and uh and as you know and uh, you know um people have been using the film to kind of wake up their interest and people would buy it and show it to their grandparents and their parents and and bring french back in their family again and then some passamaquoddy people uh passamaquoddy indians live in maine and they have a beautiful language and it's dying and um they saw the film and they said you know what we need this so we worked for 15 years after that with Passamaquoddy people, and we developed a whole approach to helping uh, endangered languages. And then some people in Mexico saw it and uh, what the Passamaquoddies had done with us. And they said, you know what? We have a dying language. We need you to come down here to Mexico and, and, and do some work with us. So we worked with this one uh, town, this village up in the mountains for, for 10 years, and they got their language, you know, um, settled in, they're, they're good now, and 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 then now that we're working with seven other communities in Mexico, and all the stuff that we learned in that cinema, and working with those Franco Americans in in uh, Waterville, and in all of those shows that we did throughout every every city in 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 New England that had a sizable French uh, uh, community, we we showed that film in, and we learned every every time we showed it, we learned people taught us what we needed to see and hear That's about. Awesome the suppression of language, what it does to the family, to the individual, to the community. And we realized that this is happening all over the world, that, you know, there's 7,000 languages in the world, and they say that by the end of the century, 90% of them will, will die. And we thought, you know something, the French taught us how to save a language. We're going to go out there and, yeah. um, and you know, refine these, these, this knowledge, and, and that's, that's what we're doing now. That is very, very awesome. Yeah, I think one thing... That plays a giant impact as far as why this film has been has cut such a huge influence here in New England is because we can identify with a ton of the people that appear in the film. I know I'm sitting there, I'm watching, and, and Mike Turcott is telling his story about you know being the first to not speak French in his in 
his generation is the first. Yeah. And I'm like, that's that's me and my sister. I know that. And we have the people talking about how, you know, she there was one woman who talked about how she was a 12th generation Franco-American from France. Yeah. Obviously, having spent a lot of time with us today, Quebec in between. But she yeah. talked about how sad it was that the thing that the French language would end with her. And yes. to me, again, it's so crazy because, I mean, I can trace my history back to France. Yeah. And anybody listening to this podcast knows that I'm super less than thrilled at the thought of yeah. being the first generation that doesn't speak French. So a lot of the stories, I mean, even though, I mean, your story was in was in Maine, a lot of the same stories that you were telling are the same ones that we've been telling here in Manchester and uh-huh. all, all kinds of other places. Well, I, I really respect that. And I think that it's um, it's it's way cool that you guys are doing what you're doing because it's, it's part of this kind of language revival movement. You know, Reve did its thing and, it, and then it stimulates other people to... Um, Everybody stimulates everybody else. You know, the more right. people do something and are visible with it, the more other people say, "Oh, that's how I feel. I, I want that. I want to do that." And and um, and it's really beautiful to see that. And that's why we called it Reve, waking up French, because people were waking up. They were waking each other up, and they were helping us to see and film that process so that it could in turn wake up even more people. That is tremendous. No, that's very exciting. Now, I did want to mention one location that I thought was really cool. Because to be honest, before I saw your 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 film, I yeah. knew absolutely nothing about Madawaska Maine. Absolutely oh, nothing. Yeah. What, maybe you can tell us what Madawaska Maine is about and how you ended up there. Yeah, Madawaska, Arista County. Well, it, kind of a couple of uh, streams of uh, influence. Well, one is that Julia Schultz, my partner, uh, um, did her... Um, some of her uh, undergraduate and graduate uh, research for her master's uh, thesis in in um, the Arusta County, Madawaska, uh, is one of the larger towns there, and um, and in Augusta, and so um, she she knew a lot about it, and she brought that knowledge to me, and um, and uh, especially she had worked uh, with women and and in in um, in the county and how. And how they were preserved, they were kind of the vehicle of preserving um, the language and the culture. And she helped me understand a lot of things. But basically, um, we had made a short film at the beginning of the Franco American Film Festival called um, Rear Ensemble. And um, you see some some of the footage is in the, the film Reve, but some of it was um, uh, was very early on. And um, and we started to show that film around to kind of stimulate discussion about being French. And Ross and Judy Parody um, were both in the main Senate and legislature at the time, and they're both strong language and cultural activists from Fort Kent and um, Madawaska. And when they saw um, Rear Ensemble to, to laughing to laugh together, and uh, that's a quote from 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 the film in which um, Cecile. Uh, Vigu says, uh, "Rear ensemble, c'est le meilleur remède. It's the best healing." And um, and uh, and you and we saw that so much, you know, in the French sure, community. The yeah. more they spoke French, the more they laughed and enjoyed themselves, yeah. you know. And and it was contagious, you know. I mean, awesome. I didn't mostly I didn't know what they were saying because I'm not <laughs> my French isn't that great. But anyway, um, Ross and Judy said, "You know, you got to come to the county. We still speak French. We still have a French." language uh, alive here but it's endangered and so they 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 found some funding for us and they brought us up a couple of times and um they they introduced us to people and we were able to to do that shooting and to do that footage and i have to tell you something i, I don't know uh, it was um 
after I did Seizure Comprend Bien, a few years afterwards, I was invited up to the county to, to show it. Not many people showed up, and, and the people who showed up were, were old. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, and after they saw the film, they shook their heads and they say, well, you know, uh, I think, you know, we think it's dying. It's, we think it's dead. French is dead here. You know, all we have left is, is hope. And, you know, my first reaction was, wow, that's pathetic. You yeah, know, if all you have left is all you, all you can say is just to trust to hope and you can't think of anything else to do, that's that's upsetting. Sure. But, but you know, that's their, it's their place. You know, I, I it wasn't my place to say anything. I've since come to understand just how powerful hope is when people, you know, and, and, and Reve gives people hope. And when they get hope, when they when they feel it in their hearts, then they then they open up to possibility and to action and, and to and to understanding their own desire and yearning and to acting on that. And and so when I came back almost 20 years later to, to film for Ross and Judy, I saw a much more um, vibrant. Uh, French culture in the valley. Now, I can't say, I think it goes up and down. I, I think, you know, the valley has really um, a big problem with out migration because there's no employment. Sure. And so young people leave. And of course, if they're leaving a French culture to go work in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, where it's all, or, or Boston or any other place where it's mostly English speaking, you know, they're not going to come back to live. They're not going to raise their family there. So they're really, um, there's a real struggle going on in Madawaska to stay French. And yet the, the you know, the, the, the globalizing uh, forces that everybody is feeling, the people in Mexico and the little villages have the same problem. You know, their kids are coming to the United States and they don't speak Ayuk or yeah, Zapotec sure. or Mixtec, you know, anymore. Because, because they can't, they can't survive in their communities anymore because of, it, it just costs too much to live. So that's uh, that's how we uh, came to Madawaska. And we've come back there a number of times and, and we love the county. And I'll say to anybody, you know, if you're French speaking and you're going to you're thinking about a vacation, go to Madawaska. It's <laughs> a really awesome. great place. It really is. And it's a it's a it's a bit of a hike, but every place is a bit of a hike in New England. And, uh, <laughs> but they have a Acadian festival. It's really great. And every year, a different family has a uh, reunion and some of these you know sometimes two or three thousand people show up from all over the world you know when the sears or, uh, the thibodeaux or uh families you know and it's their year they they really kick out and they have a great time <laughs> that's awesome big music yeah now one of the things i thought was way cool about the film is that your film asks a ton of the questions that honestly me and my franco-american friends have been debating discussing thinking about forever and ever and one that i thought came up pretty early on in the film it was actually when you first introduced that you know the turcot family yeah and you're talking about the loss of language and the sadness that comes with the loss of language yeah and they at least mentioned the the the, the question of whose fault it is that the language is going away which i yeah. think was was super interesting something something that we talk about quite a bit you know what was this something that you know, we did to ourselves that we lost this or something that was done to us. And I, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, the people up in that you covered in Maine going through the same kind of deal. Well, what's your what's your opinion about uh, what's your response? to that? <laughs> it's a big reason I'm doing the podcast. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, I've come I've over time doing this project to start wondering because I've spent a ton of time going back and forth with people about this. But 
I find it uh, less in that question, honestly, semi less interesting because I don't think it helps us get to where we want to go going forward. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we're always spending time trying to apportion the blame pie. Exactly. I don't, I don't know if that really helps us, you know, get this revival, this renaissance that, you know, we're trying to get. Well, you know, I, th I think you I think you nailed it. You know, I mean, this is um, something that I I address in the live presentations when I do a, when I do show the film and uh, and afterwards I'm facilitating the discussion. Uh, inevitably, people uh, either they blame themselves. They sometimes they think they weren't smart enough to learn a language or um, they uh, they blame their parents for not teaching it to them. There's all kinds of blame, and, and it's not an issue of blame. Blame does not help, which is what you just said. Right. It's a question more a question of responsibility. What kind of responsibility are you willing to take to get your language back or to get your culture back or to do something right. that affirms your identity? And here we run into a kind of – sometimes you, you run into a kind of block – and we see this a lot. We see it with Native Americans. We see it with um, in Mexico. And it's a block that has to do with fear. And people, um, because what got passed down from the 20s with the Ku Klux Klan, this intergenerational trauma, this fear of being French, this fear that you're going to be attacked if people know you're French by the fact that you're speaking French in public. Right. Um, this, it, it's, a, it's irrational. Of course, nowadays, that anybody would feel that they couldn't speak a language in public. I mean, we hear, I mean, there's 67 languages being spoken in Portland High School. Portland Maine High School has has uh, has to have 67 translators for the yeah. kids that are streaming in from the Congo and Somalia and, uh, you know, and, and so many other places. So everybody nowadays, it's a it's, it's different kind of attitude towards bilingualism. We know it's good to speak two languages. Right. You know that if you bring up children speaking two languages at the same time, they they test better, they do better in, in school, they get uh, and 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 life lifetime they they uh, have higher earnings. This is good research at all. It's 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 all there and it's good and there's good theory to back up why that's why that's the case. But what happens, for instance, here's a typical thing. Somebody will stand up and say, oh I'm so sad, you know, I'm losing my French, we're losing our French, I don't have anybody to talk to. And this is after like two or three other people said the same thing. So I said, so I'll say something like, well, this this lady over here just said the same thing. Why don't you get together afterwards and make a right. date and speak French? Oh, why don't you start a, a French-speaking group? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so there's like that block comes up, that fear comes up to, to take any kind of action, you know. Now, there's a lot of French... Uh, groups. Uh, the one in Waterville has been going for like 18 or 19 years. Um, Augusta, Lewiston, Woonsocket, they, they all have these French-speaking groups. Um, so that's one way that people can you know, reconnect is find these groups. But, you know, it's no, it's no big deal to get together with some people. But here's the thing. The French is the language of love. And you spoke French with your aunt, you know, your uncle, your your brothers and your sisters or your mom and your dad, your grandparents, and they may all be gone by now. Right. And so you associate that with the loss of love, the sure. loss of the yeah. loved ones. And you don't realize that there's another kind of love, uh, the love of your culture and, and your um, and, the, and the love of of um, being kind of a, a warrior for culture 
and 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 going out there and 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 doing something extra to um, to you know to help your community, uh, namely you know start a speakers group or join a speakers group or uh, or this kind of thing. So I find that especially among older Franco Americans, uh, there there is this, still this fear and there's still this resistance to um, to uh, you know to to taking action. And um, I haven't found you know <laughs> the formula for. For shaking that loose, but but right. uh, you yeah. know, as you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of things. You guys are a perfect example of it. And um, and there's people all over New England that are, are doing amazing things. I don't know. I've I've been collecting stuff with um, you know Centrave that comes up. You know uh, these kinds of what I call emergences. So when people take action and do things, and it becomes you know um, makes French visible, I call that an emergence, a French emergence. Lucy Thibodeau and um, Saint-Georges the Beauce taught me how to recognize that because she, she invented it in her own life. So I'll film that and I've got a bunch of stuff and, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll edit a, a sequel to Reve. But, you know, getting back to your question, it's, it's not helpful to, to, to blame. Uh, it's, it, you've got to really, because it just gets in the way of you taking responsibility for knowing what you want and how you're going to go out and get it. I'm 100% with you there. And one the scene that I thought was uh, super interesting, I paused it and rewound it about uh, 100 times when I was watching the very first time. Actually, it was with uh, Mike Turcott. He's just standing around. He just rattles off a bunch of the questions, which is the entire reason this podcast exists. Like some of the topics we're exploring, like, oh, yeah. do, you have, do you have to speak French to claim your French? Do you, yeah. uh, do you need to speak French to be a Franco-American? Uh, yeah. What actually is a Franco-American? Like right. these are all super deep, super complex, super interesting questions, and they yeah. all are touched upon in your film, which I thought was very, very, very awesome. I'm wondering if if you have the same answers to those questions at the end of the project than when you did at the beginning, because mine's always changing. Yeah, to some of these questions. Well, I think it was interesting to get to know the Turcots 20 years later, and you know, to film the scenes that I did film with them, because I think. Mike had, I think Mike actually knows French. I mean, his grandmother, as much as said he was a fluent speaker up until he was, um, you know, he went to school. Right. So he, um, so one of the things that we came to understand in, um, this may not be an exact answer to your question, but it's, 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 it's an important thing to bring out. One of the, um, so we can return to that question again, if you feel uh, like it. Um, so one of the things that I learned from Michael and I learned in the in the Franco-American Film Festival. So, for instance, in the Franco-American Film Festival, people would come in and uh, they would say bonjour. And uh, Julia would you know, ask him a question in French and they'd say, oh, <laughs> I don't really speak French. I, I used to speak it, but I, I can't speak yeah, it more. Right. Yeah. And so what, but then what we found out is during the Franco-American Film Festival, as they heard French, in the films and then spoken in the audience they some people actually got their french back That's and awesome. then you know they started speaking french again almost spontaneously and then you see that scene in the film um where um uh janet white says you know i i'm 12th generation you just mentioned her and and i i want to speak french and all those women got together with julia schultz and a lot of them became speakers because they had been speakers as children. But when they went to school, they were discouraged from speaking. Sure. But not only was it a lack of practice, but it was the ambivalent attitudes towards the identity. 
the feeling that you love your French, but you it all but you also have inherited this fear of being French, this fear that if you speak it, you'll be uh, stigmatized as an inferior person, um, as a you know lower class yeah. or uh, as ignorant, you know the yeah. frog, the whole frog thing, and uh, and and so that gets in the way. So we realized that we needed to do a. Um, so, so we did that, and we helped a lot of those people become speakers again. And then when we went to the Passamaquoddy community, we found the exact same thing, that, that young Passamaquoddy children had been beaten up by nuns. They had the same story the French people did. The nuns would hit them with rulers or, or sure. worse if they spoke Passamaquoddy. Well, these were kids who were coming to school, and they didn't know anything else. And the nuns didn't know any Passamaquoddy, of course. So, you know, they didn't know anything better than to to punch or strangle or pull the kid's hair when they spoke Passamaquoddy because that's all they knew. So if the kid had to, had to use the restroom and, and said, you know, said it in Passamaquoddy because how else is he going to say it? Right. And, and the teacher, so then the teacher like takes a, and you know, throws an eraser at him or, or, or smacks him upside the head with a ruler, you know? So of course, you know, when he's 30 years old, he's not going to be speaking Passamaquoddy and he's not going to be teaching it to his kids because right, exactly. he doesn't want them to go through the same thing that he went through. So you had this whole generation that uh, was traumatized physically, emotionally. So they have the language in them. They understand it, but they can't speak it no matter what they do. So we invented a program for fluent comprehensors, which is what we call these folks who understand but can't speak. And we've helped a number of Passamaquoddies become speakers. And now we're starting to introduce it a little bit in Mexico. And we presented it at some conferences and so on. So that was another amazing thing that came out of this experience. Absolutely. That, that, um, that uh, we started to, again, you start to appreciate the emotional history of a people, what they've been through. But you, but nobody, no one person can tell you that. You have to do this video feedback uh, with everybody contributing little bits and pieces until you put it together. Oh, our grandparents came down, but they didn't want to stay and they would go back. And so there was no reason to learn English. And, uh, and then they got trapped here after the, the depression uh, because uh, if they went back, they, they wouldn't be able to return to their jobs and they had no other source of income and they lost contact with people in Quebec. So this then opened, you know, so um, I want to talk about that at some point with you guys. You can do that now. All right. Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, I did a lot of filming in Quebec, especially when I was traveling with Zachary Rashad. And it was amazing. You know, so Zachary Rashad would do a show and we'd film people afterwards and they'd say, Oh, I didn't know there were any French-speaking people in um, in uh, in the United States. Right. And so you think, well, wait a minute. A million people left Quebec. Right. You know, Absolutely. between 1890 and 1920, and whole towns cleared out, and so on. Um, and and you don't know anything about it. And they say, you know, it's funny. We had an aunt, you know, who um, lived in Biddeford, and she'd come to visit us once a year. And we always, after she left, we would always wonder, how come she lives in Biddeford? They had no idea that that their family and and their community had migrated on mass, uh, and so that's the kind of emotional history of Quebec. Quebec lost a third of its population in a very short period of time. It was traumatic, you know, whole towns emptied out. Uh, it was humiliating because they they couldn't feed themselves, and the uh, all their institutions, you know were uh were affected and, and collapsed uh and and um and their way of handling it was the same thing is to suppress it 
I've really wanted to show, I've shown the film Montreal, but not to a French audience. I've shown it at Laval University, but to, you know, to academics. And um, I've never really, I wanted to go back. I really would love to go back to Townsend in Quebec, especially now that I have a French subtitled version of the film, because 20 years ago, you know, most people in Quebec wouldn't have understood English. Sure. But now this new generation, everybody knows English. And now I have an English subtitled version of the film. I want to take this film back to Quebec. I want to show it to audiences. And I want to hear people talk about, um, you know, and, and reconstruct this piece of their history. They need to do this because there's a barrier there between, um, you know, there's a line drawn on a piece of paper. And on one side is Quebec, on the other side is New England. Right. And, um, and we don't know each other. And we're not benefiting from each other. And there's a lot of prejudice against Quebec in, um, in, 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 in Maine. You know, some companies in Maine, they think Quebec is communist. And it's like, what? You know? Okay. And, um, yeah. and uh, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's nutty. It's really yeah, that nutty. is nutty. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, I, I really feel that uh, it would be a lot of fun if Franco-Americans could come to Quebec with me and we could show the film and people could um, could um, start to get to know each other and enjoy each other because they have a lot to give to each other. That is so awesome. I could do this for absolutely ever. This has been a, a ton of fun. Oh, good. But winding down, I just want to make sure we get this out. If somebody wants the film, how can they get it? Yeah, so uh, go on online to um, www.wakingupfrench.com. And right on the front page there, it says uh, copies, how to buy a copy. And they can use PayPal. They can send a check. They can, there's a variety of ways to pay for it. They can also buy Si Je Comprends Bien, uh, the first film. And that has a ton of stuff in it that's um, very interesting. And uh, we're, we're, we're selling um, copies all the time. And it's, it's really amazing. Um, you know, libraries, colleges, and, and lots and lots of uh, individuals. And we get really heartwarming, really, I mean, to be a filmmaker and to get this kind of response is really super. You know, people will, you know, say this this is really an important film for me. You know, it helped me uh, find myself. It helped my family, you know, start to talk about who we are. Um, my grandfather watches this film, you know, once every week, you know. <laughs> And I, I showed, I gave the film to a, a Native American leader, and this was before I started working with the Passamaquoddies. And um, I called him up a week later. To, you know, I said, you know, did you have a chance to watch that film again? He said, I watched it five times over this weekend. That's awesome. And you know, that's that's how it works. That's how it um, it touches people. So for me, it's an honor. And um, you know, I, I I still feel there's some, there's, you know, that there's a. Uh, a process happening in the Franco-American communities, and and uh, it, it 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 should be supported, and um, and and people should should um, uh, really uh, pay attention to their French heritage and to the fact that it it connects them not only to all over New England but to to um, to Louisiana and all over Quebec and and New Brunswick and the Maritimes. And um, and to all French-speaking people everywhere, because uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a super culture. It's a super language, and um, and when people get it back, they change. They get happy, and um, that's priceless. No, oh, that is so awesome. Now, 
would be the website be the best place to keep track of? Because I know one of the best things that's happened to this podcast is that we've now got a bunch of listeners in Quebec, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so if they want to, you know, stay in touch with you to in case, so when that event in Quebec does happen, that they can yeah. be made aware of it, or when you release Reve 2020, what's the best way that we all know to be able to to connect? Well, I don't. I don't think the website is is just kind of information. I think there's a Facebook. Perfect. Uh, they, there's a Facebook page for for Reve, and um, you know I, I've made a lot of films since Reve. I don't keep up on all the ins and outs and how things are being distributed, but um, um, I think the Facebook page is is probably the way to go for for news. You know, we're not doing a lot with the film, but if people have ideas for for uh, things to film or our events or or if there's if if there's waking up French going on in their town, we'd like to hear about it. Very uh, awesome. So, um, uh, so you know, that's that's the best way. Very cool. Now, just quickly, you mentioned the theater in Waterville. Does that still exist? Yeah, Real World Square uh, Cinema has um, has uh, has grown. Uh, it now has a uh, an international film festival associated with it called um, uh, Maine International Film Festival. Uh, they do great work there. Um, just recently, um, their future has been stabilized because they've uh, they entered into uh, some kind of um, partnership with Colby College, and so um, it's a it's a it's a strong thing. Uh, and I encourage anybody in the area uh, to to go check it out. Check out their website. Uh, check out the Maine International Film Festival. It happens in June, July, and um, and go and visit the, the the cinema. It's a great place. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. I'm looking at Mike right now. We're definitely going to go ahead and make sure that we get uh, the links to where you can buy the movie. If, you, again, you. if you're interested at all in anything we've talked about ever on this podcast, all those major big topics, big questions, they are covered in this movie. Absolutely check it out. So we'll link that. Uh, I'll make sure to put a link to your Facebook page so people can follow you for what's going on in the future. Uh-huh. Uh, ben Levine, again, the filmmaker behind, excuse me, Revive, Waking Up French, an awesome film. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and to to talk about the film again and and to revisit these questions, which are still really current, and we all need to be talking about them. So thanks very much for your work. I love it. Thank you, sir. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.